Hey, welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality. I'm Sydney DeLorean, and I'm here in the studio with Zach Bird. What's up, Zach? Hello. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for coming to your garage to record this. I love it. You know, it's it's convenient location. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to talk about this guy. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're doing this episode about Lou Pearlman, who we both kind of knew about, Um before but then uh lance bass lance bass (laughs) um lance bass from nsync just released a documentary about him um and we were so excited is it a lance bass production like is he the one who released it yeah he was it's he it was his production company okay um and so this number one i think this was like It was a movie that he made and produced, and then YouTube bought it, and I think it was a deal to get people to do YouTube Premium, because you could only see this movie. They're like, ooh, scandalous documentary about the former um, creator, whatever, of Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, Um, uh, but you can only watch it if you subscribe to YouTube Premium, so like... Uh, yeah, I mean, I was so excited for this documentary. I would have bought like a year's worth of YouTube, whatever, you know, subscription. I was like all in on it. Uh, but uh, after seeing it, yeah, it's well, yeah, we'll, we'll get, get into, into it. it. Yeah, and I but. will just say this is my review of YouTube Premium, which um, I had to subscribe to, to, to so we could watch the documentary. And I had to sign up for the one month free trial. Um they made it very easy to cancel. So I never paid them anything. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes subscription services make it really hard to cancel where they're like, you can't cancel now. You have to make a phone call the day before your card is charged and then you can cancel. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole thing. And um, that was not the case. So thank you, YouTube Premium. So this guy, Lou Perlman, he is known as... A pedophile uh, hustler. He is known as a pedophile hustler. Um... So I was familiar familiar with him from this 2007 Vanity Fair article called Mad About the Boys. And um, you were familiar with him from this 2009 interview that Rich Cronin from LFO did on Howard Stern. Yes. Um, and uh, both of those things kind of get into how he was a creepy pedophile. And um, we hate those people. Uh, and we're all about exposing them. But I, I am... <laughs> We hate them, but but without them, we have no podcast material. I mean, that's not true. This is this is a show about sex, drugs, and spirituality. It's a, it should be called set, "Sex, Drugs, and Pedophiles" that we hate. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe I'll change it. That'll be the yeah. third name. I mean, change. it just seems like it's a lot of like, yeah, R. Kelly, this guy, uh, Ryan Adams. Well, those all fall under the category of sex. Yeah. Um. I've. I guess we're due yeah. for doing an episode about drugs. Uh, I just I haven't been, felt inspired. So let me give sure. a background on this guy, uh, Lou Perlman. Uh, he was born Louis J. Perlman, June 19th, 1954. Um, he was fat and he had no <laughs> friends and he was a liar. And that's just what I got from Wikipedia and Vanity Fair. His nickname growing up was Fat Louie. So, OK, we feel bad for him, I guess. Um, he grew up in, um, I believe in the Bronx, Queens. I don't know. He grew up in one of the boroughs and he allegedly is first cousin to Art Garfunkel 
which uh, Wikipedia and Vanity Fair say that he is, but the documentary questioned it because, yeah. like, he was a liar. Yeah, that. So some kids he went, he'd grown up with, were like, yeah, he told us all these lies, like he was Art Carfunkel's, whatever. He was related to him. He what was he again? He was his his first cousin, is what he said. Um, but yeah, who who's to fucking say? Yeah. And then he, because um, he was just like full of lies where he said he did a paper route and then he like upsold the paper. Like he bought a paper route from another kid and then started adding donuts, donuts to yeah. it and like then sold it after the paper route was valued more. And it's like, dude, you can't buy and sell paper routes. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, that for sure. They People were like, yeah, that is bullshit for sure. Um I wonder if you go to Art Garfunkel's Wikipedia if it says first cousin of Lou Pearlman. I mean, I, I guess I didn't ever research that. Um, but yeah. Um, so in 1964, he claims that he saw a blimp. He wanted to ride it. And so he went to the airport like he saw this blimp land and he went to the airport and they said only special guests and journalists can ride the blimp. So he uh, wrangled an assignment out of a school out of his school newspaper and then he went back to the airport with his new press pass and he was able to ride the blimp. And then after that, he was just so in love with blimps and he hung around the airport to see the blimps and he would help them out. And he claims that he became their unofficial mascot. And uh, you know, but it seemed like an innocent enough and endearing even enough thing like where you're like, OK, he's just kind of a dork. But him and his buddy are like super into blimps and um, uh, yeah, aviation and all of this. And if he stuck with that, he was still like making a lot of money. I'm getting ahead of ourselves oh, here. But are. yeah, but. Well, so he only had one friend, his fellow, uh, and they're, okay, so people who are really into blimps are called balloonatics <laughs> or helium heads. So I, he had a I fellow, he had a fellow uh, balloonatic friend named Alan Gross, and Alan lived in the same apartment complex as him, and allegedly they were the only two kids. And so Alan was three years older than Lou, but they became friends because they were both kind of nerdy, um, and they were the only kids in this building. So... Alan says that Lou stole his stories and then passed them as his own. So it was Alan who saw the blimp land and he like pointed out to the Vanity Fair reporter, okay, this is my apartment because he lives, he, until he died, he lived in the apartment he grew up in. And he's like, this is my apartment. You can see that's where the planes and blimps land. Right. Uh, Lou's was on the other side of the building. So like, and then he said that he was the one who started hanging around the hangers and helping out and that, you know, he brings his buddy Lou around, um, but Lou never helped. He wouldn't like help them run things or be a gopher. He just would sit there and stare and not say anything. Um, and so Alan coached Lou to talk more and was like, listen, dude, you're, you're weirding people out. Like you're just sitting and staring and they're not going to want you around unless you like show yourself to be helpful. Like yeah. kind of like, Make yourself an apprentice. Um, and uh, Alan Gross says he regrets encouraging Perlman to come out of his shell. Because uh, he's like, man, I think I maybe like unleashed a beast. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so they... Uh, they, went, they went away to separate colleges. And then when they came home after college, uh, they started a commuter helicopter business together. And it did okay. Like, it was sold. A company bought it. 
And it would basically, like, if people needed to get around the city, it would helicopter them. Um, <clears throat> so they uh, sell this. And then um, in 1980, they start a blimp company together. Yes. And this is the best shit show ever. Yes. I'm so excited to talk about it. Please go ahead. <laughs> um, okay. So... Lou wanted to start a blimp company, but they didn't have any money and they didn't own a blimp. But he pretended they owned a blimp and leased it to Jordash, the jean company for advertising, because it's 1980. Yes. And with the money that Jordash paid him for the lease, Lou bought a used blimp envelope is what like the, I don't know, the balloon part's called. And he got a company in New Jersey to build a frame for it. And interestingly, it was assembled at the same naval base in Jersey where the Hindenburg had crashed in 1937, <laughs> um, which is just kind of uh, foreboding. Yeah. Um, and then the deal is Jordash wanted it painted gold and it was going to fly around um, like a big promo party in Manhattan. And they kept painting it gold, but the gold would turn brown in the sun. So it just was like looking like a giant turd is what Alan Gross said. <laughs> Um, which also is foreboding because when they tried to fly it for the Jordash party, it crashed in a nearby garbage dump after flying less than a mile. And Perlman blamed, instead of being like, yeah, we bought like a used blimp envelope. Like he claimed we own this brand new blimp. It's ours. But instead of being like, okay, it was a used blimp envelope. We had some fucking people throw together a, a thing on it. Like, no, he's always the weight of the paint is why it crashed. Um, and Alan Gross says he believes that Perlman never intended to fly the blimp because it hadn't passed the required number of test flights and it would have been illegal for it to leave the base anyways. And so he thinks it was an insurance scam, which seven years later, Perlman got finally settled with his insurance company over that crash and he was awarded $2.5 in damages. So he cleaned up and he took that money and then he raised three million more dollars through penny stocks, which you've seen Wolf of Wall Street. Isn't that about penny stocks? Yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so he raises three million more dollars in penny stocks and he starts Airship International um, in 1985. Uh, he purchases a real blimp uh, and then he claims falsely that he has a partnership with Woolen Kemper, which is like a big deal blimp building company. Like... They're like the number one. He's like, oh, I have a partnership with them. And um, I have all these like advertisers li lined up. So buy my penny stocks, give me money and like whatever. Um, so he's actually doing OK business because they said in the documentary um, that he he basically pioneered advertising on blimps. That was like his deal, right? Yeah. Um, he did McDonald's and SeaWorld and like. Right. That was a thing when we were kids. Like blimps were yeah. things. And it read Ice Cube's a pimp. Yep. Is that true? Do you know that from the song? It, it's crazy to me kind of what you don't know about pop, pop culture, especially like rap and old school rap and stuff. So I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with that. I grew up super churchy, so I wasn't allowed to watch TV. Anyway, Ice Cube song and it says even... Saw the likes of the Goodyear blimp and it read Ice Cube's a pimp. Oh. Yeah. Um, and anyway, but now we know that Lou Pearlman, yeah, started that. He started that. 
1991, he relocates his building offices to Florida, which is interesting because all the band stuff happens in Orlando. Um, and there's some more shady brokerage house dealings. He explan- expands his fleet of blimps. Um, and he's uh, on paper, he's already a millionaire in 1992 um, as a CEO of he has a blimp company. And then they have like a private aviation company, which we will so get into later. Um, and uh, so he's getting all these investors saying he has an aviation company. So he is leasing jets and he leases a jet to new kids on the block. And he finds out from their manager because he's like, how do these kids afford a, a private jet? And their manager's like, they're making 100 mil a year. And then Lou says, I want to get into this. Yeah. Um, and so he uh, and I wanted to throw I don't know why I put it at this point in my notes, because um, he's getting all these investors for uh, his you know, aeronautical companies. And this one um, uh, girl whose parents were investors says, uh, this is in 1992, he was so unbelievably fat. He used (laughs) to sit down and his entire middle tire was down to the floor. (laughs) The Vanity Fair article, it was written in 2007. And I think you could still, like, I don't think today they would publish quotes like that. The opening line of that article calls him a rotund impresario. <laughs> well, yeah, and that I know that we'll get into later the Rich Cronin thing, but I mean, he, he comes out, he's like, "Man, this dude was so fat and creepy," and, <laughs> and stern, and everyone's just laughing. Uh, and that's where I got the line, uh, "Pedophile hustler," because he goes. He's telling Howard this story, and he's like, you got to understand, man, I'm from Boston. I never dealt with no, like, you know, pedophile hustlers or anything. And Howard's like, yeah, they're hard to come by. They're hard to come by, (laughs) To be fair, he wasn't actually a pedophile, right? He he was, because, well, I don't know how old NSYNC and stuff. Oh, uh, he was a pedophile. Okay. We will, we will get into it. All right. All right. Um, I'll get us. I'm about to get us to the boy band era. Okay. Please, for fuck's okay. sake. Jesus no. <laughs> fucking Christ, baby. I got, right. I, got, I got so much to say. I know. No, go ahead. In 1992, Lou Roman posts an ad in an Orlando paper seeking casting for a boy band. Um, and he finishes casting that band in 1993. They're called the Backstreet Boys. And what Lou did was he paid for everything, their living expenses, their dance coaches, their like everything. Um, And while he's doing this, trying to, you know, boy band boot camp, they worked hard. They would like train all day like it was a job. Uh, He encouraged them to call him Big Papa. (laughs) And I don't. I love it when you call me Big Papa. (laughs) That's what he would say. I just all sweaty. Um So, and he spent so much time with Backstreet Boys that the blimp business, which was a real actual business, that one went bankrupt. Um, And at this time, he says the airline business is still doing okay, or so he said. But this is where we get into the fact. So he's like, oh, I'm funding the development of this boy band with my uh, aeronautical company or whatever but this company never existed like he uh used fake pictures to um recruit investors and alan gross shows like you see these pictures this is 
you can't see the tail numbers on the plane because that's where Lou's hand was because Lou had had Alan make him like a model plane that said transcontinental airlines on it. And then Lou went to the airport and did the thing where he held the model up and took a picture to make it look like this model plane was a real plane and landing. And Um, it did look like a real plane. It looked pretty good because it was a Polaroid. And so at the time, like you can hide a lot of you know, flaws. Um, and so, yeah, so he's getting investors based on this fake uh, plane business and he has like falsified AIG and FDIC documents. So saying that people's investments with him are secure. Um, and uh, one of the guys in the um, the Lance Bass documentary um, called the Boy Band Con, I should have said that. He yeah. he goes, yeah, we did think it was weird that he owns a, like a private jet company, but we're never flying on planes that are transcontinental airlines. We're always flying on like American or Southwest. Like, So he's like, it, yeah, it seemed weird that we were flying commercial airlines when he apparently owned an airline. Yeah, And he said, oh, I have 49 planes, but he never owned any planes. Yeah. Um. Okay, 1995, uh, he forms in sync because Backstreet Boys is doing good, and he's like, let's start another one. And then he's making money from like the bands and um, his fake investments into his not existing company that turns out to be a Ponzi scheme. And he's making so much money that he buys Chippendales, and then he buys TCBY, uh, the frozen yogurt company, and he buys NYPD Pizza. To protect and serve great pizza. I yeah. love their... Is that what it is? It really is, yeah. Stop it. I, I swear. Man, we should have ordered that for dinner, just like in theme with this. Yeah, and TCBY. Yeah, those are things he's all passionate about. I like that. He's like Chip and Dale's and uh, yeah. Well, you're supposed to, yeah, invest in products you believe in. Uh-huh. So like I get it because... Right. He's really, well, now we're going to get into it. He's really in the little boys, so he starts boy bands, and then Chippendales, and then ice cream. So, like, yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And in 1997 is when Backstreet Boys blow up. They're actually getting famous. So, I mean, from what, 1992 to 97, he did put money into developing these bands. Like, that's time and money. And he would, like, pay for everything and whatever, and so they finally blow up, which is super exciting. Um, and a couple of things happen is uh, they they finally start getting paid. Like after the bands get famous, they start getting paid. Um, but their checks are like tiny. Like I think NSYNC said their first, sorry, uh, congestion. Their first checks were $10,000. Like after this no. This is after they'd sold like 2 million albums or something. Mm-hmm. something like that yeah and they were like yeah we've been working for three years and we're selling two years right i think theirs were three years okay i could be wrong um and then yeah they they're they're like uh ten thousand dollars where's all the money and that's where they found out not only had lou made himself the sixth member of each of his bands that he produced but he also all that money he was spending every time he flew them places or took them out to fancy dinners, uh, it was theirs. It, like so, basically, the they were paying back that money, right. um, which is bullshit. That's really common in the music industry. This documentary made it seem like an anomaly, right? But like that is kind of common. Is you have to uh, 
pay back all of the expenses that went into so the production. So you're sitting there going, wow, were they really putting us up in a nice hotel and all of this? And yeah. Yeah. Where I like, I think I said when we watched it, if you knew it was your own money, you'd be like Motel Six, like get me a Subway sandwich. Right. I don't know if I'm ever gonna get famous. So right. Um, in 1997, Backstreet Boys, they're famous now, and the first allegations surface, and they're in regards to Nick Carter, um, who he at that time was 17. And he used to love going over to Lou's house. And they showed Lou's house in the documentary. And he had very much like a Michael, like a, not to the scale of Michael Jackson's house, but very similar where it was like a theme park. You know, they were like, his house was like a theme park. It was like Disneyland. He had a movie theater. He had snacks. He had a pool. He had jet skis. He would let the kids have parties there. Like, oh, I've created, basically, he creates an adolescent boy's dream right. and is like, my house is open to you. Bring your, bring your other yes, friends. Yes. Um, and so Nick Carter allegedly, like, he used to love going <clears throat> over to Lou's house. And then all of a sudden, like, overnight, he became very uncomfortable with it. And A.J. McLean's mom said that she heard from the Carter camp that some form of inappropriate behavior had taken place. And the Carters won't comment on what happened, but uh, the mothers of two other members say that Nick's mom, Jane, termed Perlman a sexual predator. Um, and then former manager of Backstreet Boys, Phoenix Stone, says that Nick was not comfortable talking about what happened. Um, but like he because he went and was like, listen, I'm hearing things. What's going on? And Nick was like, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, but Phoenix Stone said there was a big blow up with the family in Perlman at that time. And Nick and his mom won't discuss it for fear of his career. And this is the interesting thing is um, because allegedly it was like there was Rich Cronin said this and a couple other people said this where it was like there was one member of each band who had to take one for the team with Lou and Nick Carter was that person for Backstreet Boys. But then the interesting thing was in the, um, in sync in the, no, in the Lance Bass documentary, Aaron Carter, Nick's little brother, who later went on to have a solo contract with Lou was very defensive of, yes. of Lou. My favorite part of the documentary, by the way. Yeah. Well, okay. So he's obviously on drugs, right? Yeah. Uh, so he was vehemently, he's just like, fuck that. Man, Lou would never, never. Why would he do that? Like, right? Am I yeah, pretty no, that's accurate? Pretty, that's pretty accurate. And uh, one of my main complaints with uh, the documentary is that they did not have enough of him or really any of the good things that you would want. But, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't salacious. And the documentary honestly focused on all of the business scandal and very, very little on the sexual scandal. Right. And we want the sex scandal. <laughs> yes, and there was no Timberlake. And then now that I, I know that it was a Lance Bass documentary, I'm really like, where the fuck was Timberlake? Where the where was Joey Fat One? Uh, where was... Um, they only had like one Backstreet Boy, right? Well, the thing is that they don't want to talk about it because they fear it'll affect their careers. Right. Like all of a sudden they're not known as being this musician or performer. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like I get it. Um, but come on, that's your boy Lance. Yeah. 
But even Lance didn't talk about it that much. And so... That's true. Uh, yeah. Apparently, there's like seven or eight names that keep coming up in regards to having been assaulted by Lou. And none of like none of them are willing to talk about it. Um, so Tim Christopher, who was in Take 5, which was another Perlman joint... Mm-hmm. Um, at the age of 13, he remembers that there was a sleepover where he and another boy were dozing and Perlman appeared at the foot of their bed, clad only in a towel, and he performed a swan dive on, onto the bed and wrestled with the boys, <laughs> at which one point his towel came off. Um, another time they went over to use the pool and like, hey, Lou, we're going to come over and use their pool. And Lou's like, yeah, come over and then greets them at the door naked Okay. Um, he also said that they were showed footage of Innocence, which was another Perlman band, uh, sunbathing. And that was confirmed by uh, this girl, um, where I have her name. Uh, she, so this woman whose name I've totally lost in my notes. Oh, Nikki DeLoach. Who she was in the all new Mickey Mouse Club with like Britney and Justin and Christina. And then she was in Innocence, which was a girl band that Lou put together. Interesting trivia. Britney Spears was an original member of Innocence. Oh wow. Um and Nikki DeLoach in the documentary said, Yeah, he apparently had cameras. He would invite us over to Tan and be like, You need tans, you know? And then he would show the camera footage of us getting naked and tanning to the members of the boy bands. Um, and that's not cool. And that's like totally a thing you do when you're edging towards pedophile where you like show the other person porn. Like, is does this make you horny? Like Michael right. Jackson did that. Um, that was a pretty that's like a technique. <laughs> You're staring at me like, right? I'm just looking for your input. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've watched like 18 documentaries about groomers this month. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I guess they show them <laughs> videos and stuff. They do it. Yeah. Um, and he invited Take 5 over to watch Star Wars in his home movie theater. And then they sit in to watch Star Wars and the movie starts. And then all of a sudden it's interrupted and porn comes on, which is like, yeah. And like they all they're like, yeah, we were kids at the time. So we were like, ha, whoa, wild, whatever. (laughs) Um, And then uh, apparently good kid impersonation. Sydney. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so around his house, it was known like young singers were seen emerging from Lou's bedroom late at night, buttoning their pants with sheepish looks on their faces. Cause Lou would just be like, spend the night, bring your friends, spend the night, like, or like live at my house. Cause sometimes he would put the bands up in houses like that weren't his and other times they'd stay with him. Yeah. Um, so Steve Mooney, this guy who was an expi- aspiring singer, he served as Perlman's assistant and lived in his house for two years. And the deal with Steve Mooney was he he worked at Abercrombie and Fitch at the mall. And one of Lou's assistants came in and was like, the big man wants to talk to you. And like Perlman was so famous in Orlando. He like was like, OK. And so he goes and meets with him. And Perlman's like, yeah, like I want you to join my next project. But uh, how about you become like my assistant and live with me? Um, and Jesus, it's fucked up. So like Steve Mooney, he says like some guys joked about it. I remember one singer asking me, have you let Lou blow you yet? And I would absolutely say the guy's a sexual predator. 
Predator. All the talent knew what lose game was. Uh, if they say no, they're lying to you. Um, and so he he confirms Rich Cronin's deal about like Lou being a massage. Like Lou, one of his moves was like the massage. Yeah, and Lance Bass even kind of mentioned that in the documentary. That he's like, oh, let me massage you. And uh, so Rich Cronin from LFO, a.k.a. Light Funky Ones, is like... <laughs> is that what that stands yeah. for? Yeah. Okay. He says, honestly, I don't even think Lou ever thought we would become stars. I think he wanted cute guys around him. This was all an excuse. Um, it, and when the lightning crazily struck and an empire was created, it was all dumb luck. I think his motives for getting into music were very different. And um, Rich then said, uh, like, uh, yeah, some mystical freaking ancient massage technique that if I massage you and we bond in a certain way through these special massages, it will strengthen your aura to the point that you are irresistible uh, to people. Um, and then he'd like call you over to talk about a tour and then he'd be sitting there in his boxers and Rich Kernan added, uh, yeah, guy was hairy as a bear. <laughs> um, and so Steve Moon, he's like, yeah, like he'll be like, do you trust me? I want to break you down and build you up so we can be a team together. Your aura is off. Like I need to massage you and align your aura. Um, and <laughs> Like, every time they were alone, basically, Perlman would be like, let me massage you. Yeah. Uh, or, like, your abs. He'd be like, show me your abs. Let me rub your abs. Yeah. Uh, oh, that was another part that Aaron Carter was like, you calling this guy a fucking pedophile? He would never. He showed me how to do diamond push-ups. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, okay, first of all, like, Perlman is right. not, does not look like he could teach no, you anything any about. Any push-up. Yeah. No. Um, and then also, like, you have like a grown man who's talking to like because when the when the guys joined these bands they were all like 13 you know they were very young and so like a grown man's being like let me see your abs you need to get abs lift up your shirt let me feel your abs like that's weird right that's yeah. fucking weird and he's trolling abercrombie and fitch which was known for that was the deal is like the staff had to be super sexy and they had all those sexy uh posters in the store like you're trolling Abercrombie and Fitch for friends. Like girls who wear Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the only reason I said I, I didn't know that he was, like, to be fair, not confirmed pedophile is because uh, really all I know about him is what I saw in the documentary, which wasn't very revealing. Rich Cronin's interview, and that's really it. And then in Rich Cronin's interview, he was, like, 24. Yeah. He was saying. So in everything I've heard, just sounded like he was kind of coming on to everyone in a really creepy way and just being an all-around creep but had never actually like fucked anybody yeah or, you know well whatever happened with nick carter nick was 17 at the time okay and so and then yeah this guy from take five is 13 when lou's swan diving into his bed <laughs> butt naked and in inviting kids over and answering the door naked right so like whether or not you actually had sex with kids right if right. you're manipulating children to see you naked like right, right that's right. pedophile like behavior yeah for sure but yeah again i just they this these are things they didn't go over in the document i'm getting all the the good information just from you rattling this off because yeah it's it's a lot um and yeah it's just like it's gross and a lot of the thing is like i i was like maybe the lance bass documentary didn't 
feature as much about the pedophilia because it basically it's a lot of like he said she said it's like people who lived and worked in the house being like i heard a lot of rumors i never saw anything or like people who are afraid to speak on the record so a lot of the information in the vanity fair article that's like super good and juicy it's from people who weren't willing to speak on the record so they're saying yeah like we saw you know boys leaving his room late at night buttoning their pants but like they're not going to give yeah, names but, but don't mislead me into fucking thankfully you signed up for youtube i didn't have to dude i it's just such a, a, a waste the whole time we were sitting there right like waiting for and i'm just like dude i don't give a fuck about the blimps or these ponds it was interesting but but not as interesting as we wanted to be. And as let's let's talk about how we have been we watch a lot of documentaries and they're all fucking shot like music videos now yeah. where it's like just like long shots with like music and like video effects and you're just like what happened to interviewing people and showing pictures yeah like it's yeah. all about mood now and less about facts. Let's just mention what we're talking about too. Yeah. Cocaine Island we were watching last we have about 20 minutes left yeah. of it and it is a great story but yeah the way it's done and the way it's shot it's like it's like they're trying to do a documentary but also make a movie movie at the same time yeah and it's like how about you tell the story and then let somebody else maybe potentially make it into a big movie movie right well i th i feel like the amount of details they're giving us it's a 20 minute like web doc right. worth of story like it is not that much of a story but there's all these interspersed shots with sweeping camera angles and stuff and right. just music and i was like it used to be they would have people talking and explaining things to you and then while that person was talking they would also show you the thing that they're talking about and instead it's now show the person talking and then show the thing set to music and it's just like i i'm getting a lot of mood from this but i'm not getting as much plot right, like, like let's fucking get to the meat like of this how much of that that cocaine island documentary was like um it's like yeah and he was sm he was smoking cigars or whatever and they just show a slow-mo of a guy it's like a reenactment of just a guy smoking a cigar slowly and you're like Get the, the fucking story. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not into that at all. And that's how this, um, again, it made me really happy that it was easy to cancel this YouTube. Because if my fucking credit card had been charged $15.99 for this service, I would have been pissed. Right. Um, like, just let us rent the, the movie from iTunes for two bucks. What yeah, the fuck are you yeah. doing? Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, the the guy, uh, what is his name, Mooney, that wanted Steve to... Steve Mooney is Steve all Steve Mooney, know. yeah. He said, so he's like, yeah, I'm like living and working with Lou and he's stringing me along like I'm going to make you an O-Town. And he, he thinks like Perlman's kind of creepy. And so he invites his dad to go to dinner with him and Perlman. And the whole dinner... Perlman's putting his hand on um, Steve's leg under the table to the point where Steve is like, stop, like verbalizes, like, stop, what are you doing? So after dinner, he, like, he's like, dad, so what did you think of this guy? And Steve Mooney's dad goes, he seemed okay to me. And he's just like, here's the fucking power of this guy and his, his ability to bullshit where people buy everything he's selling. He's rich. He's associated with these bands. 
and they're able to overlook like he keeps sliding his hand up my thigh during dinner like right um the, the start of the documentary too it was probably at least a good 15 or so minutes where they're talking about what a good guy he is right yeah i think that's like there was just a narrative device to set it up right then they could be like and he turned out to be this and i because he was super generous and blah blah blah. there's a lot of parallels obviously with with michael jackson yeah but uh and it goes a long way for explaining in this new like world where like abuse and manipulation is coming to light it it explains because people are like, I would never let someone do that to me. And you're like, well, if someone's like 90 percent great and then 10 percent of the time they, you know, hit you or molest you or do whatever is bad. It, it It's a lot harder psychologically to divide yourself right. and just be like, oh, this person's garbage. You know, like they work with you and develop you as an artist and give you a career. And then they're like, let me suck your dick. And you're like, man, I don't really want that. But. I, do I owe it to them? Like, so it kind of, I think them being like, okay, he was a good guy, yada, yada, explains how people were able to fall into his trap instead of being like, yeah, he's just like Fat Louie from the Bronx. Everyone knows he's a liar. I, I, I love that. I was telling you about like when I was in school, it just shows how unimaginative kids are with their insults. And they just call him Fat Louie. Mm-hmm. I said, I, I knew this girl in school. They just called her, fat fay and i was like there's not another fay that's skinny that you have to like differentiate yeah <laughs> it's just like fat fay i don't know people are shit yeah they are shit <laughs> i mean in college i was white sydney but it's because there was a black sydney. so that makes sense so it makes yeah. sense but yeah if there's not another one then you don't really need to have She's like, like my, you can just call me fay and people will know yeah <laughs> who you're talking about um so so this guy steve mooney he's being strung along about being in o-town and one night uh perlman is working with phoenix stone the original manager or something of the backstreet boys and they're working on the selection process for members of o-town and perlman calls up mooney and is like come over take out my trash and mooney's like what the fuck no like i know what this is about like, I'm not coming over to take out your trash. And at this point, Phoenix Stone says he blew up and was like, if it's about the trash, someone else can take it out. If it's not, leave the kid alone. So, like, everyone knew something was up with this dude. Yeah. But, like, I guess they didn't have enough evidence to be, like, 100% he sucks. So I'm still going to work for him. Um, so Stone leaves. And he thinks, like, okay, we put the issue to bed. I told him to leave the kid alone. And after Stone left... Perlman called Mooney back and had him come over at 2 a.m. And so Mooney heads over and he's greeted by Perlman. Perlman's wearing a robe. This is his move. Yeah, this is his move. And he's like leaning back in an office chair and his like, it's a white robe. He's got white underwear on, I assume, Teddy Whitey's. It's all kind of hanging out. Yeah. Um, Laying all over the playground. Yeah, it's just inside joke. Sorry. Uh, Well, you can tell the story of that. Um, it's kind of long. Well, so I was at a big and tall store a long time ago when I was you were a bigger, big boy. bigger man. And, uh, and there was a older black woman like helping me. And, and I was, I was trying to explain to her, I was like, if I get, uh, a double XL, it's like too big. It's, it, it's, uh, 
and she's like, oh, it's laying all over the playground. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's it's laying all over the playground. I, I forget if it was that or if it was too small, like... You know, like if I raise my arms, my my gut would hang out. I think that's, <laughs> that's what. It what was. It, yeah. yeah, and she goes, "Oh, child, you're laying all over the place." <laughs> like she was, was talking about your gut, right? Yes, yeah. yes, my gut being all, all the playground. Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, you're right." So that's that's something I've never forgotten. <laughs> um. So yeah, Perlman's he's just he's, he's got laying a, all over. The he's playground. laying all over the playground and. Um, uh, Mooney is like, okay, like, I'm sick of this shit. Like, what do I have to do to, to be in this band? And Perlman leans back and says, you're a smart boy. Figure it out. <laughs> and like, at that point, Mooney, like, he's like, this is fucked up. He didn't quit then because it is, in fact, his job working for Perlman. Right. But at one point... He sneaks back in, like when Pearl or when yeah, when Pearlman's not home, Mooney sneaks into his office and goes through his private files, and he gets um, three photographs. Uh, one is of a longtime Pearlman aide posing as a Chippendale dancer. Another is a photo of Pearlman and one of the Backstreet Boys on a ski vacation, apparently alone. Like they went on a vacation yeah. alone. That's kind of weird. And. Uh, the other one is a photo of a young singer naked in Perlman's sauna with his hands covering his genitals. And so Mooney's thought is, like, I'm going to show that this guy is a fucking pervert. And he Xeroxes them and makes copies. And then he contacts the aide in the picture who's posing as a Chippendale dancer and is like, dude, like, what the fuck is up with Perlman? And, like, he's fucking per pervert. Like, we should do something about this. And the aide says um, that he should keep his mouth shut and he'll be in the company for life. Like, yeah, just keep your fucking mouth shut. Don't report this pedophile and you'll have a job for life. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I just. Ugh, yeah. Uh, Rich Cronin says like uh, Perlman would call him at night and be like, come over, talk about tour. And then he'd get there and be sitting in his boxers. Like, yeah. so it's just. It, it's a whole fucking thing. That's another area where this documentary blew it because they didn't have Rich Cronin on. And I think for for the exact reason that they know he would have talked about, you know, things that people are interested in and it would have been a better fucking documentary. Yeah, if they had... Well, he's he's an interesting storyteller. Like, I could listen to him he, talk all he day. He sounds like Bill Burr. He's He's got a really thick Boston accent and uh, it's... He's just really, and if you listen to the Howard Stern interview with him, he gets immediately into it. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, this guy's such a fat fucking creep. Oh, he came over, dude, his dick's all hanging out and shit. <laughs> and like, Howard's just like, whoa. Um, yeah, he's got a story um, that is interesting outside of the Lou Pearlman stuff because then he dates uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt for a little bit. And yeah, I would say listen to that. Um, it's it's, what, yeah, it's on YouTube. It's super fun. And it's funny because the picture that they use for it says Howard Stern, Rich Cronin. And then the picture is just Lou Pearlman's fat jowls. And it's like, if you don't know who Lou Pearlman is, you're thinking, oh, that's this Rich Cronin. Wow, he's really gone downhill since <laughs> LFO. <laughs> he's gained a lot of weight. Yeah, it is uh, something. <laughs> um, so in... Jesus fucking Christ. I don't even know where to go with this. In the year 2000, 
Um, Perlman finds a listening device in his office and like he calls in Phoenix Stone and someone else and it's like, what's this listening device doing in my office? And they figure it out like they're interrogating all the staff and it turns out Perlman was having an affair with one of the guys that worked for him. And that guy, I guess, was actually into Perlman because he became jealous about the affection that Perlman was showing to the boys in one of the bands. And he's like, I'm going to put a recording device in Lou's office to see, uh, you know, what's up with Lou and this boy. Yeah. And um, I just can't even imagine being jealous. Like if Lou Perlman. Maybe it was just over like money and stuff because so, he was paying them more like attention you know, and showering them with more gifts and things. Yeah, maybe. Because I like if Lou Pearlman's your boyfriend, I can't imagine you being jealous that he's like being affectionate with anyone else. Cause, yeah, right. Ugh. But um, so they figure out who it is. And the guy is so the boyfriend, like the guy who was dating him, who had put the device in Pearlman's office. He's fired, but he is given an escalate in exchange for his silence. Like, listen, you're done here. But if you keep your fucking mouth shut about me fucking this boy in the band, um, I'll give you an Escalade, which like then you got to pay the fucking insurance and shit on that. Who wants to pay the insurance yeah. on an Escalade? That's yeah. And Rich Cronin, he also bought him a Navigator, he said. So it's like he's just buying cars like at least check and see if it's a car I want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, you, I mean, you get a car like that and then the fucking insurance is as much as a car payment. And then you're like, well, you paid me $10,000 after three years of free labor. I can't afford this. Yeah, right. I can't put fucking gas in an Escalade. Um, But the boy bander continued, the boy bander who's not named, who was part of this scenario, continued to work for Perlman for years. Um, in the year 2002, Perlman like produced and financed the movie called Long Shot that starred Britney Spears and The Rock, and I've never heard of this movie, but it cost $21 million to make, and it only made $2 million, and I desperately want to see this movie now. We, we can watch that. It's got to be fucking terrible, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in 2006, the sort of shit fell apart with the Ponzi scheme he was running, and he, uh, he fled the country to avoid charges, because um, basically it was unraveled that he had stolen... $317 million from investors and he owed $156 million in bank loans and so the FBI was on to him all this shit and he was not going to deal with it so he fled um, and uh, he was found in Indonesia and he was registered at the hotel under the name A. Incognito Johnson Shut the Fuck, that's the Simpsons when Homer, they're like, what's your name? And he goes, Guy Incognito. (laughs) That's what, so, and the funniest thing is like, Lou Pearlman is a very distinct looking human being. And because he fled, he was on the news everywhere like this, because what a story, right? He's behind all these bands and he was given like he was so big he was given a key to the city of orlando and he was bestowed like an entire block of the city to revitalize which he did like he was a big deal and people knew who he was he produced the tv show making the band like he'd been on 2020 about his music he was a famous person and then he's in the news about extorting all this money which like that's just high drama right 
And he flees the country and goes to Indonesia thinking no one's going to recognize him. But these people, I think they were from England. They also were vacationing in Indonesia. And like the morning of their flight, they had seen him on CNN at the airport. They'd seen like the footage. And then next thing you know, they're in the hotel dining room and they fucking see Lou Pearlman. And they're like, I think that's the guy. Like, I just maybe I don't know where you go when you're like, oh, a fat white guy because really Orlando is the only place you blend in at. Right. Um, but like, so the, the people who recognized him, they uh, secretly took a picture with like their cell phone. This is 2006 cell phone. So not great, but they got it done and they sent it to um, a reporter from like the Orlando Sentinel saying, dude, I think I see the guy in Indonesia and she forwarded that to the FBI and within like 24 hours, the FBI went and arrested him there. But I'm just like, yeah, like, I don't know that you, you he was just like hanging out, like going to the pool and shit. Like, I'm on vacation. Yeah. And it's like, you should have stayed in your fucking room and gotten room service, you idiot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and meanwhile, like, I don't know, drastically changed her appearance before reemerging. Yeah. Um, and so when he fled to Florida, his offices were opened up to the public to tour before an auction because basically he's got all these debts to pay back. So the bank is auctioning his shit off. And um, there was nothing really interesting found there. It's just notable that he had a lot of breath mints. I like to keep fresh. I like fresh breath. I'm That's- a close talker, and it's all that I got. It's always fucking people where it's like they're obsessed with mints, and you're like, you know what you need to be obsessed about is like your six-month dental appointments and like making friends with some floss because you are desperately trying to cover some shit up, and you just need to solve the underlying problems. Right, right. Like people whose whole apartment smells like cat boxes but then they got some blade plugins like don't right. get me started you're just doubling down on the on the awful right you're, just, you're gonna crack one of those rotted teeth if you keep chomping on those uh icebreakers like that right it's sorry that was a psa for me no we, we, can, we can go in that direction yeah it's just it's just troublesome is all i'm saying or we can go in one direction where did one direction come from not this. I know, I know. This is they were way after. But yeah, I thought ninety eight degrees had something to do with him. Apparently not. No. Oh, okay. It was. Oh yeah, because they kind of they were like brothers and stuff. Yeah, they started their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that would have made the documentary better too, and wouldn't have focused at all on the pedophile shit if they, because how crazy is it that he he's in the blimp business or aviation business, um. And then he just decides, like, oh, there's a lot of money in this boy band shit. I'll start some boy bands. I'm a fucking fat guy with no musical t- ability. Yeah. Like, and then he did it. To me, that's more interesting. How the fuck did he do this? Who wrote the songs? Who did everything? Like, Yeah, I, I would be more interested to hear about that because there was that famous Florida music producer whose name is escaping me, and I think he was involved in the production. Yeah. But, like, yeah, it's interesting that inspired by New Kids on the Block, Perlman basically spearheaded the boy band, like, renaissance, which was a big deal in pop culture. Yeah. Um, And then, like, as his, like, so basically Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, um, very close to each other, sued him to get out of their contracts. And that was, like, after the blimp business went under... The boy bands were the only real businesses he had making money because remember, like the aeronautic investment deal, 
wasn't real. That was a Ponzi scheme. Right. So now he's lost uh, BSB and he's lost in sync. So he doesn't have any legitimate income coming in. Yeah. And so he's taking out loans to start new bands and he does the TV show making the band. But he's not it, it, at this point in time, the they've kind of waned in popularity. People don't care about boy bands that much anymore. And so none of those things are being lucrative like his and he doesn't know how else to make money. And he has this whole Ponzi scheme to support because he's using money from new investors to pay out old investors. And with the loss of the bands, he's has less money to pay out. Yeah. And so it really kind of steepens the Ponzi scheme and he starts taking out all these bank loans and it just kind of, it spirals. And that's when he, it leads to him being discovered, um, as a, you know, a money hustler. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> the article from Vanity Fair, uh, said that, um, they went and talked to the neighbors and the neighbors said, you know, like we never saw any like big parties or anything weird happening over there. The only thing we know is that our gardener once motioned towards Perlman's mansion and um, made what at the time seemed like a strange comment to them, which was, if you have a little son, don't let him go to that house. Bad things happen there. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So like, it's yeah. just, Jesus. Yeah. Um. Um, and in, in 2008, Perlman was convicted and sentenced to up to 25 years in prison. But he died. He died in, in 2016. Yeah. So um, so he sucked. And he died. It, yeah. And he died, which is exciting. It's just weird to me, like the cost of fame. I don't know. Like just being right. like, I'm letting my teenage boys go hang out at this dude's house and you trust him because you think he's a successful businessman and a successful businessman could never possibly also be a pedophile. And like, yeah, I don't know. To me, it's it's funny, too, because you heard me kind of I saw I'd heard the Rich Cronin interview years ago, probably when it came out. And then I was just kind of listening again just before we did this. Um, and Rich Cronin's going, yeah, none of us can fucking sing, you know, like so it makes you just kind of look at some of these people that are big stars and you go yeah are they anything or is it that they were glittered up and they got the right produced song from wherever whoever the fuck actually wrote it and you can make anybody a star well i think they were actually talented because they did spend you know, they basically went through boot camp for years. Like they it sounded got, like they were all super hard workers. Yeah. Uh, I'm not speaking about LFO. They didn't focus so much on them really at all. They were like a blurb in that documentary. But Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, yeah, I'm not saying they're not talented. But it seems like almost you could just sort of select somebody and then, oops, uh, and then with the right amount of money and people backing you just, yeah, I mean, they got deal. these kids who were so young. They're 13 years old, and they had some talent. They could dance. They could sing. But then they, like, put them through training so that they could dance and sing in harmony with each other and yeah. not get winded while dancing and singing live. So I feel like they did create some very talented performers just because it's like, yeah. you know, you don't graduate from, like, 
Juilliard with a degree in theater and you have no acting ability. Right. Like you have to be good to get in and then you spend four years extensively training how to do something. And then at the end of that, you are like a goddamn professional. I feel like Timberlake's proven himself to be a yeah. talented person after that. Um, not trying to take anything away from yeah. anybody. It's just. I'm just saying these are guys that you could probably give them. Sh- you know show them any dance moves and they can do them you yeah. could show them any sh- like sheet of music and they could sing it like they're like right, that we're right. like you could throw them into any broadway show but it's not an easy thing to just shit out these pop songs that are insanely catchy to everyone i yeah. mean those were so backstreet boys were the first ones they had so many hits mm-hmm and my, I guess my question is, where did they come from? Because Lou wasn't the Matt. He wasn't yeah. writing, you are, <laughs> you know. And yeah. then he's like, all right, we could do this again. All right, let's get. I don't know. I yeah, gave him that well, no, accent. I think he just, he had the money to put the right people together. Yeah, where did he find that? I, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is I want to form a boy band or back a boy band and, and make some money off that as well. Whatever you want to do, baby. It's Thank your you. money. I just, I just want to know how he did it. Um, no, But uh, yeah, I think they said in the documentary, like, basically, like, yeah, he had the money to actually make this happen. So, yeah. like, he could be like, who's the best uh, songwriter out there? Who writes the hits? Get him. Get him in here. Fly him into Orlando. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, I think there's more more to it. Yeah. Um, to that story. Um, and that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, let's let's interview the guy who Lou called and is like, yeah, so I had to write, uh, <laughs> I want it that way, and Lou was breathing down my neck. <laughs> He's like, uh, you know, make it hot, make it sexy. These are teenage boys. But innocent. Abs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we want it, you know, like hot, sweaty, like just really inappropriate things. <laughs> yes. So were you kind of looking around when they were interviewing people looking at their house because i'm like curious okay so if you're not timberlake and you just had that in sync money how are you doing financially well at this they point? didn't interview them in, in their, their house yeah they were like in the warehouse they were but in like was- it was an airplane hangar because this was a stylistic choice because they they trained in an airplane hangar yes. they had like lou had this rehearsal space that was it was like a everyone though wasn't like lance bass was in his mom's kitchen for part of it right oh that was his mom's kitchen yeah but everyone else was in like uh, was in like that airline hangar and then they did the weirdest thing where they when they were talking about training and the boy bands they had like these like reenactors doing the dances in that hangar yeah like rather than just show archival footage of the kids like before they're famous like rehearsing right they just kept i'm like why do we have reenactors it was interesting also to see um justin timberlake before because they did they do show footage of him he had a little bit of an accent and stuff Mm -hmm. and his mom kind of had an accent so i was like i didn't know that about him that he's kind of like not like trashy or anything it was just kind of like uh i didn't know that he had came from that background yeah and then his mom still has that sweet noodle hair yeah yeah. she had some uh some curly ramen hair yeah she was real cute yeah she was cool uh lance bass's mom was cute too i know you cute mama you had a little bit of a crush on her i did choose yeah it's all right it's fine whatever you know um whatever i'm sorry yeah so whatever um 
Oh, oh, one of the things I wrote in my notes from the documentary is they said like he kind of picked kids who didn't have like families or didn't have two two parent homes so that he could become more of a father figure that I forget. I wrote that down. I can't remember who said it. Do you think that was a calculated thing? I think so. When you're trying to find predatory victims, you find people who come from broken homes. It seems like with R. Kelly, he just kind of was spraying in all directions. And then those are the people that ended up. Staying. staying and i bet lou was kind of similar but but no knows? someone said like the people he, it, like suspiciously the people he chose to be in his bands didn't have fathers yeah and like that helped his like father figure big papa deal yeah um and so yeah i don't know man like Oh, oh, I have a quote I wrote down from the documentary. Lou would say, I minored in physical therapy and massage. Uh, I can give your muscles a pump without you even working out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then that way he could massage them. Like, oh, let me massage those abs. And like, oh, Jesus Christ. He's Um, selling me on it. You know, I tried at least just to see. Yeah. At least once. Um but yeah, would you recommend the documentary? No, I recommend yeah. the 2007 Vanity Fair article and the Rich, and the Rich Cronin, Cronin yeah, interview. Yeah, definitely the Rich Cronin interview. Um, the Rich Cronin interview—it's so off the wall that you have to wonder. You're like, is this all true? You know, just because it's so outrageous, I'm inclined to believe it just yeah. because of. He just seems like someone who's telling the truth. Yeah, and he's he's telling it in a way like, can you fucking believe it? Yeah, shit? yeah, he's, he's super like jazzed a, about it. He's yeah. just a kid from Boston that fell into that life. Yeah, I'm really curious. Yeah, what, how he's doing financially now. It sounds like they didn't get a whole lot. Yeah, from that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um. All right. But well. yeah, so that was I. I had more fun doing this than watching the documentary. The documentary, yeah, doesn't show you any of the juicy stuff that you want. If you're dirtbag like Sydney and I, yeah. how dare you call me a dirtbag <laughs> on my that, own podcast? I, I meant that in the nicest way. Um, no, just in the sense that we we like the juice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe after this, we'll have to go and watch something good. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, happy hump day, everyone. Yes. <laughs>